to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories to gather insights that will help you live a life with greater meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. At the end of the podcast, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes raised in our conversation. And I'm happy to say my guest today is the CEO of Stanton Dahl, the architectural firm. And he found some unexpected twists and turns and reasons for reshaping the role he plays within the industry. And we'll explore that in more detail in our conversation. His name is Shane Evans, and a fun fact, Shane recently discovered Zwift as a form of safe cycling. So welcome to The Purpose Edge, Shane. Oh, thanks for having me. But first of all, let's clear up Zwift, because I've never done it. Um, what does it do that an exercise bike doesn't do? Uh, well, it uses, I guess, uh, a virtual reality kind of, uh, or perhaps augmented reality is possibly better, better framed, um, where you can ride with an avatar and compete with other people anywhere around the world. Okay, so it gets um, those competitive juices flowing while you're doing the... Plus, it uses my real road bike, not an exercise bike, and okay. uh, and it, it simulates. So I've got a hill thing, so it goes up and down, and a wind thing, so when I'm going down the hill, it blows faster or whatever. So, oh, wow, okay. So it's, yeah, an exercise bike doesn't do that. Yeah, that's full immersion, as you say. It's AR, augmented reality. Fantastic. Yeah. So we're going to hop right into it, Shane, and I'm I'm going to do my best to stump you with with a, with the opening question, and that is, what is the purpose of architecture? Uh, depends who you are and what lens you want to put on it. There is no one purpose for architecture. Um, so if you want my version of what is my purpose for architecture, then. I would say ultimately architecture needs to serve people and uh, and it needs to serve people in a way from my perspective that that adds value to their lives uh, in simple form. And that's your your architectural firm, Stanton Dahl, has that as its mantra. Is that right? Well, yes, I guess we call it our sort of uh, our second title, so to speak, that we are architects in service of people that is trying to help bring that value into the people that we work for and with and and the staff that we employ um, and how we engage with the work that we do. And um, um, for, the, for the average person in the street, what do you think they have, how do you think they would interpret architecture? Would it be any different? Um, I think you'll end up finding that some people will say, yes, that's absolutely what uh, what a built environment consultant should really be exploring is is serving these things. But I also think you would find that that certain components of our society would say that architects are sort of egotistically designing things for their own benefit. They're almost like edifices to their own story. Um, and and that will manifest in certain ways. Um, is it right or wrong? Well, that's for others to decide in their own moral worldview, I guess. But at the end of the day, I think most people would want the architect to actually be designing something that makes their life better. Mm. It's just a question of well, what does that mean? I was listening to a podcast about some New York property developers. Some of them have been uh, fairly famous US politicians recently. Um, but some, the person on that show made the point that the property developer is generally forgotten in the process, but the architect's name often lives on in a, in a say, grand building design. So even though the architect maybe earns a lot less money than the developer, it must feel good to be the artist um, instead of the owner sometimes. Yeah, well, I've heard architecture sort of described as artistic engineering, so to speak, which is, is a little bit, you know, not really nice in one sense. Um and yes, architects sort of have a have a brand value that can be applied to a development, and then certain developers will take advantage of that. Yeah, sort of a star architecture quality. <laughs> so once upon a time, you were a keen young architect, and what did that early career journey look like for you? Uh, well, my own story is uh, took a while to finish my degree, and decided halfway through my architecture schooling that. I don't know if I wanted to be an architect anymore. Um, and yet that's something I'd sort of wanted to do from the middle years of high school. Very, very clearly said, yeah, no, I think I want to be an architect. That's what I want to want to do. I want to draw buildings all day. Mm -hmm. um, halfway through the degree, though, got very jaded with 
with what I was being exposed to, where practice in in um, old architecture was very different to the degree. Um, but I guess had a, a, a re-engagement halfway through that, um, in part because my mum and dad were paying for my degree and said, no, you will finish. Um, <laughs> uh, but by extension, then just decided to take a little bit slower and spent my time working more and studying more part-time. Mm. I was lucky enough to win the medal um, at the end of my degree and then had lots of opportunities sort of open up and decided to say, well, what, what do I want to think what do I think my career should look like? Um, and then decided to join uh, a more boutique architectural practice in Sydney where uh, where the budgets uh, allocated to a project and the client type meant that, that you were almost doing a lot of first principles-based architecture. So when you're designing, uh, you know, the entry to this building, then you're designing the door handles and how it's framed. And, you know, you're not talking about a standard door, you're talking about a, um, a very custom kind of element. And that's just one element amongst thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions that you're actually engaging with. And so the lifespan of a project would be, three and a half to four years and you're living, breathing, engaging with it, which as an architect was really challenging as a junior architect, especially had to sort of sink or swim, um, but a really great training ground to sort of unpack how to be a great architect. But of course, the real outcome that you were striving for were these incredible three-dimensional experiences, these space experiences that hopefully would then be submitted for various journal articles and engagement with the broader architectural sort of profession and mm -hmm. adding your body of work to it, um, trying to make a name for yourself. So if you go back to when you, you said you got into architecture in, um, I think, high, was it high school? You said earlier. Yeah, high school, yeah. Wanted yeah. to be an architect, yeah. So what, what was it at that point that attracted you? To architecture was it more technical and boring, or <laughs> I was, was very it more... naive at that point? What's that? <laughs> I just thought I was going to draft all day. Oh, <laughs> I was okay. Like, I was in a country high school, and the you know it was that small that the principal had to teach a teach a class, and the principal was a dynamic teacher, and he taught this subject called tech drawing slash engineering science, and that just grabbed me. Mm. Um, this whole way of communicating physical reality in drawn form that actually wasn't just a sketch. It actually had real technical components to it. Mm. So that's with me. It's amazing how one person like that can have a big impact on your on our lives. Well yeah, I guess so. I've never really thought about that. But yeah. um but that's not what architecture is. It's very different um mm. to that very high schooly kind of lens that I, I put on it. Um, and it's possibly why halfway through my degree I had this sort of crisis of confidence in it, I guess, in one sense, yeah. uh, because it was so different to what I'd expected it to be. Um, okay. Well, we'll certainly get into that shortly. But what does a successful architect have that a, that an unsuccessful one doesn't? Maybe I'm just talking uh, here in terms so, of skill, architectural skill, perhaps, rather than running the business of uh, an architectural Yeah, business. just the architecture side of it. Yeah. Well, architecture is a real generalist pursuit. And the architects that will typically make a name for themselves are more um, attacking this with a design uh, strength. Um, and so they're able to translate and synthesize incredibly complex and diverse things into an outcome that enables all of those things to work in built form, in reality. And, uh, and they're able to, I guess, traverse multiple kinds of stakeholder groups and appeal to all of them. So the real, real good architects navigate that. And, and because of that design strength, there's usually a, you know, another, there's a poetic element to the way they talk about space and to how it interfaces with, with a human in reality. Mm. Um, but because it's a generalist pursuit, just because you're a strong designer, you become even stronger when you can actually manifest that in built form. So you need to know how things go together. Hmm. You can't just draw it and then think it's going to work. You actually have to be able to navigate the the realities of things uh, while, while being the leader for this vision of what you can see that often others can't hmm. without you even realising it. There's so, a, Yeah, sorry, go complex. on. 
Yeah, there must be a, a real tension there between trying to please everyone and doing something that might be making a bit of a statement. Um, so talk to that, because I, I don't think what you're saying is it's a consensus outcome, but I think you're saying traversing all the stakeholder groups is a key part of the challenge. But by Correct. by definition, that might prevent a, a more bold bolder idea or concept. Well, it certainly runs that risk, doesn't it? That that design by committee ends up generating a camel instead of a horse, or whatever the cliche is. Um, uh, but but ultimately, so if you're thinking about a star architecture kind of way of saying this is what this is what great architecture is looked at as by society, uh, then there's usually some really intriguing, elegant, beautiful, or perceived beauty anyway. Um, grand idea of what the the brief could look like in built form, um, influenced by perhaps these preferred drivers versus those other drivers. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And so, um, uh, whereas um, that would probably apply specifically to larger kinds of projects and how it manifests in a really small project might be slightly different. Mm. Is it is it a craft like many where you tend to notice when it's done badly more than when it's done well? Uh, with one difference that many might look at something and think it's done badly and then they experience it and then they go, oh, yeah, it's done well because it's actually an experienced thing. It's not something you look at necessarily. Um, and yes, uh, the the way that we are built as humans um, will then influence your experience of that space. And, I mean, buildings are also strange. You might find it really good in this kind of environmental climate type, but change it six months later and you go into it and it's different again. Mm. Um, so buildings change and your experience often changes um, depending on your, your ability, um, whether you are mobile and fully mobile or whether you actually need assistance will change your experience. Mm. And so, yes, I guess it is, uh, it is, you will know whether it's working or not. It's a great point. So on the one hand, it must be nice to work in an area that's very tangible and you can see and feel, experience the end product. Yep. I think you said to me a while ago when we were talking that you got to a point where in your career, where in the eyes of the average architect, uh, you were very successful in doing the stuff you probably always wanted to do, but that was the point where you felt most disrupted. Do you want to talk me through that uh, process? Yeah, sure. So my context was that I was starting to head down a path of engaging in what I thought was the right kind of outcome for me in architecture. So I was starting to work on buildings that were generating award wins in the in the architecture award circles uh, that were delivering um, journal articles and opportunities to sort of self-promote or promote um, the work that I had done. Um, but I was also recognising uh, in myself that, that all these skills I was generating were really only being useful for a very few people. There were a handful of clients that you were able to, who were able to access the work that we were generating. And they were high net worth individuals with lots of opportunity. Um, and architecturally fantastic. Like I got to generate some buildings, as I said, from first principles and and uh, numerous clients where there was no budget. The, the budget ultimately was irrelevant because I was actually striving for something very different, like a collection of artworks effectively, but architectural artworks. Um, so that, that crisis for me, that disruption moment also um, aligned with the, the GFC, that sort of upheaval in our society at what's going on. And I was seeing colleagues having to be made redundant because projects were being put on hold and all sorts of things. So I was trying to work out, so how do I actually continue in this space in such a way that it's actually at that moment I was calling it, how do I, how do I use these skills to give back more to society instead of just making a name for myself? It was a very selfish pursuit. Um, and, and at that moment, as circumstances had it, perhaps serendipitously was reached out to by uh, by Stanton Dahl at that moment. Um, and they had somebody who was looking to uh, eventually retire, um, who was a uh, a key designer in the organisation. And, and at that moment, I'd been honing my craft in honing an understanding of design and how I thought about design and 
and uh, but in a holistic setting, not just in the, that sort of front end phase, but in the delivery of a design work as well. So this opportunity and, came along, and uh, what well, did you feel like that was the perfect fit, or were you going through some real existential no, existential was, angst? It was a bit of the latter more than anything, um, and was exploring with friends about setting up my own practice and. Uh, and really focusing in on a little bit more of a philanthropic, I guess, approach to architecture or, or a not-for-profit not kind of approach to architecture. Um, anyway, in my journey, um, this this conversation with Stanton Dahl in that GFC moment uh, manifested in me saying, so can I create a pro bono sector within your organisation and actually use these skills to give back to... Uh, very different kind of client type to what I'd ever worked with in, in that moment um, and pitched a proposal that effectively just said, our currency is time. Can we take 1% of our time and give it away um, and be really interested in the kinds of clients that would be attracted to that? Um, that resonated with the the director at the time. And, uh, and I said, well, okay, I might, I might join your firm then and let's see where this goes. Um, and we established the pro bono sector in the first six months. And uh, it generated some really interesting, uh, from my perspective, projects that I'd never kind of worked on before, um, all of which being done for free. So there were men sheds um, that were landing or um, uh, an opportunity to talk to the client base at Stantondale had that had at that time to partner with other smaller community organisations and, and do some rework of uh, some adaptive reuses of things. Um, you know, we can get into that later if you want. But and did that ultimately positively impact the business doing going down that route? Well, yes, but not from a financial perspective. Um, yes, because the story for Stanton Dahl is that as I sort of got here and was given a given some reins and an opportunity to actually influence the future of the business, not deliberately, just being asked to sort of think about some things. Uh, it started to become a frame of reference it became, it became a sort of a line in the, in the sand to actually be able, or a foundation point to actually be able to build a, um, or reframe a purpose and a language around what Stantondale is actually about. And I think that's an incredibly positive outcome. Mm. Uh, but financially, um, no. <laughs> I'm just wondering, did it create new contacts or new uh contacts with clients that were, or companies, um, organisations that would go on to become clients? Or no, you're saying no. they separated? No, I, I would separate them out. I would suggest, however, that, that that launching pad and that way of thinking of purpose being at the forefront of why we're doing something has actually financially and, uh, and sustainably impacted upon the business mm. because it's brought greater rigour and focus and uh, an element of... Um, uh, well, focus is the word really, um, about why we are here and who we serve. Um, and it's also then helped the opposite of that. Mm. We don't want to do that kind of work, so we will not. Mm. Um, and the negative is just as powerful, if not more, than the positive. And um, just curious before we explore this line a little further, when you were thinking about what is my career? What is my life? Did you ever think about anything outside of architecture? <laughs> because it sounds like you've you you reshaped your ideas, but within that, I guess, uh, band, but maybe not. Maybe you were thinking of other things as well. I say it this way. I I don't know how else to say this in my language. Is I, I feel called to be an architect. I don't know how else to describe it. Okay. I, I look at buildings, and it just happens naturally. And perhaps I've honed these in the role I'm currently in because I'm so time poor. You have to cut to the chase. Uh, and I'm by no means perfect and lots to learn. And, and it's a highly collaborative industry and profession. So, well, it is for me anyway. It doesn't have to be for some. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, anyway. Mm. So you're the CEO or effectively uh, it's like a managing partner role, I guess, as well as I think being a practising architect still I'm in a complex space so it's it's yeah. a proper CEO role um and the ownership model of Stanton Dahl is such that it's actually owned by a trust on behalf of all of the employees I'm not unique in that context I'm just one of the employees um I have some elements of you know directorial responsibility and sort of 
corporate taxation sort of structurally kind of ways. Um, but really it's a CEO role. So you're shaping and, and framing and setting vision and forming things. But I am also a practicing architect. So I'm one of the nominated architects for the business. And that, that requires me to then be across the project uh, in a very real, tangible way. Bridging those two, they, they exercise very different parts of my brain, although I invariably try doing the CEO role as an architect, if I'm honest. Um, don't speak business ease with the best of them. Mm. And I guess reflecting then going back to your journey into getting there, what what would have been the, the thing in architecture or school you would have liked to have known back then that you have learned now? What, what have you, I guess, had to learn the hard way? Gee, that's a hard question. How to answer that? I've always gone into architecture, and perhaps this is the answer, um, uh, thinking you could know more quicker, but it's a really slow burn career. And uh, and the more experiences you have, the better you get at it. But you have to expose yourself to those experiences with some intentionality. Don't, don't just sort of let it happen, so to speak. You have to pursue certain things and understand things with intimacy to actually be able to get better at it. So perhaps as a, as a, as a student of architecture, I would have liked to have known how slow it is. You can't get it straight away. Um, and, and I can probably name two or three moments in my career um, where it's like a light bulb goes off and you realise, oh, that's what I've been wrestling with for the last seven years. And, and you don't even realise the mistakes you've made in that seven years nor the mistakes you're about to make because you've only just gone to the next platform. You haven't actually, you know, defeated the boss yet mm. um, to use a gaming metaphor. Um, so yeah, that sort of answers your question. I think Yeah, still a hard that... question because yeah, it took me seven and a half years to finish my degree. So it wasn't like I accelerated through it. Yeah. But you must've had some real passion for it, which I think you've demonstrated in, in the way you've been talking about it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, think the interesting point that's come up is that uh, immovable object or obstacle of time you're saying you cannot short circuit the time and experience component is there is there absolutely no way you could do that or could a certain type of mentoring and another peer type program bring you up to speed quicker or is it just not possible um in the, in the firms and the organisations that I've either been a part of myself or I have uh, friends and colleagues who are a part of, uh, the skill and ability of those architects who are well-respected, highly trusted, are of a certain age and vintage and who have a certain kind of experience, which implies to me that, it's a, that it isn't something you can absolutely short-circuit. It's such a generalist pursuit that it becomes a specialty in and of itself. You might get highly gifted at one component, but then being able to translate that through to the completion of a job will be harder. Um, and that, that is a valid way to use the profession and achieve a career. Um, and that could possibly be short-circuited. Um, but if you want to be a true sort of across the board kind of architect, that is not something you can short-circuit. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And your firm specialises in... I believe social housing, schools, aged care, so not your traditional ritzy residential or commercial buildings. No. So we have uh, started to frame that as we're, we're targeting those kinds of uh, products or types or channels or markets where we can maximise the social impact on the people that we work for and with. Um, and so when we talk about residential, we actually talk about sort of a specialised residential so we actually frame it as social, affordable and community housing. Uh, or there's another lens you can put on it, which is um, uh, seniors and, and specialised like group homes or even domestic violence accommodation and, and identifying significant challenges in this housing space. Uh, and recent research is saying there's chronic undersupply in this area. And when we come to the education overlay, we're deliberately targeting sort of a a pre-K-12, K-12 and a post-K-12, so a tertiary kind of layer, um, but but often for the um, for the low-fee paying independent kind of schools. Um, 
who are targeting a specific kind of user group and market um, and who can also provide increased pastoral care as one of the um, unique selling components of what they do in their marketplace. So when and, you, I mean, you can stretch it out into the other sectors we play as well, but it's always looking at that. How do we increase the impact we can have from a, um, on the people that, that are going to be the end users, including the end owners and, and managers and as part of that user group or stakeholder group? So I'm interested from your perspective, which is going to be different from, say, a government or a private sector developer perspective, what have you seen that, that you think could work really well at maybe at scale or be expanded in terms of social and affordable housing? Because it seems like an intractable problem that we're faced with in Australia. That's That does not have an easy answer. And our podcast this afternoon is not going to be able to address it because it is so, it's an ecosystem of problems, not, uh, not any one problem that you can sort of hit on its head and then you've resolved it. Um, the one driver ultimately is is though that it is something to continue to persevere at, um, and uh, and putting the user group um, as the client to actually be able to engage with gives great power. So an anecdote I had with a a one on one for one of one of our staff members uh, two weeks ago, they were doing a, um, a government funded uh, housing project. Um, it was being supported by the NDIS. Uh, so they had some very significant um, uh, needs, mobility needs and uh, and cognitive needs. Um, and on top of that, there was also a cultural intelligence piece that needed to be thought through. Um, and this particular staff member um, made a point of saying to me that this is the second time in his career, and he's done all of this architecture bit and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of projects and scale and, you know, seeing some of those things manifest. But for this little tiny house, it was the first time that he'd ever had to listen intently, hear the unspoken kinds of elements that influenced then this particular family's needs from a spatial and, and built environment outcome. And it was also the first time where they had felt listened to to actually then be able to say, wow, this four-bedroom house that they're going to have, which to us as architects really isn't a big reinvention of anything, apart from the fact that we listened and understood the way that they wanted to live. And when it gets spoken back to you, you can see the agency that it gives you. And that comes back to the point of what is the thing that you, it, it actually is to, to be in the space. It's to actually expose yourself to it and not think that there's a silver bullet You've got to do the hard work, um, but it's incredibly rewarding as a result. It hasn't solved the problem, but it's part of the solution. Mm. And what impact did that have on your staff member? Uh, you can't overstate what the impact was. It, all of a sudden, there's a renewed energy to actually spend that extra half an hour with the client that, that is actually perhaps from our perspective, a little bit annoying is raising a bunch of stuff that you don't really want to have to listen to. Do I really want to understand how you use a washing machine? Really? Um, but this is a huge part of their world experience, of their lived experience. Um, and getting it wrong can make a significant impact. Mm. Uh, and that repeats itself ad nauseum in a variety of different contexts. But it's still complex. Um, and so a different housing typology like a like a, an aged care facility or something like that, where an occupant might only be in residence for a short period of time and brings with it once again a different different overlay. There could be palliating kind of components or there could be dementia components or all these other health conditions that need to be navigated. And you might have one individual who is really susceptible to sound and how does that room cope with how they react to sound and how that manifests in their behaviours? Um, versus the other who might might have no hearing and they've got a visual kind of um, challenge that they're navigating. Um, and how does that one room that has multiple occupants manifest and bridge and support and give agency to them living, you know, a wonderful life, even in the twilight years? So that's that's, yeah, that's the hard stuff, but it's also the fun stuff because that's where it's really rewarding. Um, does everyone find that fun or do you find that so it's, uh, suits a certain type of employee slash architect. 
I think if you can convince your staff, and this has been my experience, of why you're doing something, then it becomes the problem to solve. And therein lies the fun. It's at the at its heart where problem solvers. And and that's really challenging and fun. But um, but you need to you need to frame it a particular way that that the purpose is actually driving why we're doing this. Um, and don't get us wrong, we're still architects. And you still want to deliver a space that's beautiful to look at, to be in, to be a part of. Um, but it just also considers all of these other, I guess, subtle things, but have such impact. Um, and so I would say that yes, you can talk about this in a way that everybody in the architectural space, unless all they're interested in is an egotistical pursuit of sort of uh, edifice, then yes, no, you're not going to convince convince those sorts of architects. Mm. And you have talked to me before about the idea or benefit of humility and removal of ego. So that's really feeding in to what you're saying there. They sound like they're not just leadership traits, they're professional traits as well. Particularly in this space. Um and, and it doesn't mean that you don't have drive and uh, and vision and you don't sort of stand for what you think to be right. Um, it's just the way you go about doing it um, because the user groups ultimately will benefit. Um, yeah. Um, I was just thinking it's a very complex exercise because not only does the architect need to be a, a designer that uh, I guess meets um, to a broad degree all the stakeholder needs, then if you go into the architectural firm, you have you as the leader, uh, I guess, are dealing with a different type of stakeholder relationship within the firm and trying to find the right person for the job. So it sounds like it gets very complex very quickly. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly not a master at it, but it's just it's just hard work whether I'm wearing the CEO hat or the architect hat at the end of the day. Um, and, and you have to surround yourself with good people to uh, to help deliver upon it. Um, and, and we all have our own little idiosyncrasies, don't we? That I, I love resolving this problem this way and a colleague likes resolving it a different way and you end up having the perennial debate over the same issue. Sometimes I win, sometimes they win. Does the client win? Does the end user win? That's what I'm trying to frame as being the real mm. driver here. That's right. And I think that's the, the power of having that purpose of, of the firm sitting over the top to help right. navigate some of those tricky decisions. So that's an interesting right. conversation. Mm. I'm going to ask a, a very pithy question now, and that is, and it gets asked a lot, um, so I apologise in advance, what is leadership about in your eyes? Um, I keep asking myself this question, and uh, and there's probably a handful of things that keep landing for me. Um, recently, I've started taking, taking the view that leadership ultimately is um, is setting up a relationship in such a way that you give agency and support so that you are no longer needing to be there. And that manifests itself in a variety of ways. It's setting the vision to say, this is where we're going, everybody, but it's supporting them at the same time and being in the trenches and serving. And so, yes, I do use a, a language of service when it comes to leadership in that context. Um, but I also think that leadership has a sunset on it. It needs to be replaced or it needs to be renewed and refreshed because ultimately in my context, in the spaces I find myself in a leadership role, um, I am continually trying to bring those who I am leading to be the future leaders so that I can go and do something else. Mm. Now, that brings in issues of legacy and elements as well but but at its core yeah i think it's 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 helping others um to get to a point um where they can take the mantle and run but you have to set the vision at the same time does that mean you're putting a use by date on yourself as a leader in that context well i think it's healthy for me to think that way sure I don't think I have unlimited time to achieve the impact that I need to try and achieve. Um, my personality, the way that I think, the uh, the skill set that I bring to this role of leadership that I'm currently in um, will only benefit if I recognise when I'm actually becoming the hurdle and I'm the impediment. And it's too easy to fall for the trap to think that, that I'm the answer to everything when I'm 
clearly, well, in my view, not. And that that old adage of you know employ people smarter than you um, has real benefit uh, because then and smartness is not really the right language to use there. It's, there's other giftings and other skill sets that need to be tapped on um, and implemented. Uh, but you get the right person in the right role at the right time. You just wind them up and watch them go, and suddenly you've got to point them in the direction you need. Um, and every so often you'll encounter somebody who can actually do that across variety of different user groups or people types or something. Um, and that's that space of leadership in, a, in an organizational context, perhaps. Um, but leadership's still needed in each of those little, little channels or roles and prospects. Mm. But I do distinguish leadership from management. Leadership is not management. Leadership is this esoteric other um, and, and is, um, is different somehow. I've heard it said that leadership's like setting the vision, setting the big thing, and management's actually more about the execution and delivery. Don't think it's as fine cut as that. Um, that blurs. Good leaders are even better when they're good managers as well. But but good managers sometimes don't make good leaders. Mm. Well, Peter Drucker talked about doing the right things before you do things right, um, which yeah, sort of spoke to that in a way. But yeah. it is a very it's a very trivial way of looking at it. Lacks nuance. Um, it does. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so, w- well, I was going to ask you, what do you talk to other leaders about? But first I should say, well, do you talk to other leaders mainly within your industry or do you talk to leaders outside of your industry a lot? Um, the latter, not the former. Um, I don't know why. Perhaps I'm too scared of the competition. I mean, it's hard work to win a commission. You just need to keep winning it. And occasionally I'll talk to another architectural leader. Um but invariably, I'll talk to probably one or two leaders a month who are not in the in the industry that I'm in, just, you know, picking their brains and understanding how they go about doing what they do. Um, and, and for me, uh, the kinds of questions that I'm asking them are usually aligned with, so how does, how does your frame of reference, how does your belief system, how does your anything manifest itself then in your in your leadership context? Um, and what are the, what are the tools and what are the tricks and what are the, you know, if you could, like you're doing with me, if you could go back 10 years and redo something, what would you actually have done different? And what would you have thought about differently? Because it was counter to something you might've believed, or it was the opposite achievement for what you were hoping to achieve or, you know, the implications therein. Hmm. And I've done that for small organizations and big in terms of their leader uses. And they're very different. Scale has an impact on how you go about doing this thing called leadership. And what what have you noticed in terms of what are the differences from small to large? And look, your firm's 40-odd people, I think. So, yeah, mid-40s. Uh, yeah. yeah, which is medium to large, I think, in your industry. Yeah, I would have said medium to large, yeah. yeah. Depends so if what, you're looking at IBIS data or not. Right. So what would you be doing differently to someone in a much smaller firm? Um the bigger you are, the more removed you are from uh, from the lowest common denominator. And so you have to put more faith in either the people that are under you or you have to put more faith in the systems and processes that you set up. And you have to listen harder because things don't get spoken of as easily. Mm. So they invariably end up being similar kinds of traits depending on scale and they are scale dependent. Um uh, and then the other thing that he gets introduced then is, is personality differences and sort of they become very significant at scale as well. Uh, but the other way, the smaller you are, the greater the personality can have a significant impact on, I guess, agency you might have given others to be able to talk to you or have your ability to sort of be adopt that listening posture. Um, and even in my scale, at sort of that mid-40s, I have to work pretty hard to actually engage with people in a relational way, to actually give that space for them to be able to talk to me openly. Um, and, and there's no way that I can do it across 45 people. It just doesn't happen. Mm. Um, and the if you get a more inexperienced architectural staff member, then they might even be daunted by that whole slow burn, I don't quite understand what you're asking me to do kind of thing, um, which becomes hard. And my wife has told me that I'm in no way a good teacher, so I have to leave that one alone sometimes. Okay, I'm not touching that one. Um, I do recall an organisation, a, a large government organisation, where a staff award was given and the the award or reward was 
uh, it was morning tea with the de- deputy secretary or secretary of that department. And in the staff member's eyes, that was just terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a reward. It was a exactly, punishment. Yeah, it's a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I'm sure, I'm sure it's not like that in your firm. Um, well, I hope not. So I, I have to ask, uh, I guess, before we leave leadership, um, what keeps you awake at night? So the big thing for me is uh, I see leadership as a significant responsibility and and to do it well, um, in my view, is to take that responsibility seriously. It doesn't mean that it doesn't impact people's lives because it will. And you're, in my context, the leadership role here at Stantondale means that I've got to keep the business viable, sustainable and achieving its sort of purpose and or objectives um, and that will have implications for people uh, in terms of staff or clients or whatever so the stuff that keeps me up at night usually is where it's then going to impact upon a particular user group um, significantly that could be because there's something that a staff member's done that's generated an issue on site um, and then that's impacting upon the developer or upon the client the end user the whatever might be a less than optimum outcome that we wanted to achieve. Um, and obviously then that brings with it professional issues um, that will, will keep you up. Um, but on the flip side, it could also be that, um, you know, I've got a inventing issues, but you might have a, a, a project that's just, just become misaligned to who we say we are and what we're actually about. And then suddenly you've got to try and navigate, how do you actually deliver upon this thing and, fulfill the contractual obligation, but at the same time sort of remain integrous to what you're trying to be about. And that's not always clear, particularly on a project with a with an average time span of possibly three to five years where the where the personnel that you're engaging with can change and uh, and macro circumstances can have a big impact on the direction of a project partway through or anything. Um, yeah, so it's that it's that service component ultimately that keeps me up at night um, mm. if things aren't aren't being delivered in a service way that I want. So, uh, I'll move on to something lighter now. Work life balance. How do you how do you how do you navigate that? <laughs> I'm an architect. Is there such a thing? Do you um, have any life? Or is it all work? No, it's absolutely not all work. And I guess the longer I've been in this leadership role, the, the blurrier the line has become. That's true. Uh, so the, that work and life don't sort of um, have firm boundaries. Uh, but here at Stantondale, we we value um, people and that manifests itself by the people that are sort of loved ones and cherished as much as it is friendship groups or as much as it is clients and colleagues. Um, we are a milestone-driven industry, and so milestones will push back on your timing and your uh, capacity, uh, but there's also then relaxed moments. Um, I mean, my me personally, the challenge is being a CEO and being a practising architect means then that the time poorness nature of my day will manifest as the occasional or in some instances not so occasional all-nighter um, where you just need to hit that milestone, you have to get it done. Mm. Uh, but that then is usually rewarded or, or replaced rather, reward is the wrong word, but replaced with um, substitute time that you can invest in different ways. I'm sure you love reading board papers. I hate reading anything to do with businessy sorts of things it's not who i'm wired to be um, but i can do the hard work when i need to Um, the thing i love about the leadership component as a creative if i can put it that way is you can actually design your organization Um, and when i apply that lens to it it's much more engaging and much more interesting that's a great framing yes yeah so i'm actually applying design thinking or design skill to an organizational to an organism effectively Um, uh, the breakdown of that is then you have to then manifest it in uh, in workflows and in processes and systems. Uh, but there's great people out there you can tap on to help you get there for some of those things. So when I apply that lens to it, it's much more palatable. Yeah, that sounds like a much more interesting way of looking at the world. Hmm. So I've got three questions I ask 
all my guests to finish up on, there's no right or wrong answer, but the first one is what does purpose mean to you as a, as a person or personally, as opposed to the, uh, the firm? Uh, well, I, I've increasingly stopped using the word purpose and just increasingly started to use the word why, and um, it's, it's my why. And, uh, and so why am I doing that versus that? Why am I making this decision, not that one? And increasingly then um, am realising that in my own personal life and in, my, in the decisions that I make, um, I'm not even aware of some of the implications of some of these things. And so trying to increase my own observation and understanding of how a decision I make, which I think is supportive of my why, um, may or may not actually be supportive of my why. And so purpose then becomes this sort of constant anchoring component to come back to, um, re-pivot, reshape, uh, realign. Um, and when it's out of phase or out of out of balance, then, yeah, you either need to re-look at your why or you need to actually change something else. Mm. So it's a tethering thing, I think. And the, the challenge is probably that discipline of constantly re-asking the question. Yeah, regularly asking the question. Yeah. Um, and that's where society and, and some of the rhythms of how we operate become really powerful and or can be used powerfully if you take advantage of them. Okay, question number two. Um, what are you looking forward to? So um, uh, that's just a very open-ended question and not about anything in particular. The thing that I'm really looking forward to is... Uh, I'm entering a phase in in my personal life and in in my I guess organisational and, and leadership life where um, uh, it feels like there's some gaps opening up and where I can drive harder in some things that might be more complex and quite scary, but at the same time, I guess risk reward kind of equations step in, um, and so I'm I'm quietly excited and daunted at the same time about some of the opportunities that are starting to emerge um, just in the next probably season, um, where season for me operates generally as a sort of a three to five year kind of timeline. Um, yeah, just some unique things that might manifest. So I'm really, really looking forward to those gaps and being able to dive deeper on some possibly riskier things. Mm. That sounds like code for personal or professional growth to me. Well, it is, it is and it isn't. It, that's absolutely a part of it, um, putting yourself out there in different contexts, um, yeah, just in relationship with my daughters or with my wife and also in some friendships um, and in leadership circles as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the interesting things about architecture. Your work's on display. Um, <laughs> you have to get used to criticism in part, um, but it doesn't mean you're still not vulnerable to it. Yeah, you can't cover it up at night, I guess. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can turn the light off. It's about a week. But the big light in the sky comes out eventually. Okay, the third question, which I think is the easiest one of the three. So I, I hope it's the easiest one of the three. From your journey, if you're advising someone, say, in your profession who is early on, or maybe any professional profession, accountant, architect, uh, anyone doing something in a very dedicated space, what would be a, a tip you would give? Uh, I subscribe to the view that our society is incredibly individualistic and selfish and things unlock when you actually think about others. And so always put yourself in the other person's shoes and try to look through their eyes. A, it'll give you the better argument to be able to argue with them because you'll actually respond to the best version of their argument. Um but B, it might also reveal things to you that actually add that nuance and texture and, uh, I guess, development and growth for yourself. And you might perhaps even realise that you were wrong and not actually make that mistake. So think about the other. Mm. Excellent. Well, thanks, Shane. And uh, we'll include a link to your company, Stanton Dahl, on the in the show notes. Uh, thanks for coming on for a chat and sharing your Purpose Edge with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, what 
got a great understanding of what goes into architecture and running a firm of architects that we got from Shane. It's like we were peeling layers of an onion in that conversation. And I found a lot of things interesting. So I loved how architecture grabbed him as a concept early on in high school. And in his own words, he said he felt called to it. He's never really contemplated a different type of career or a different area to practice in. And then when reaching what he thought was the pinnacle of where he wanted to be, designing unique and bespoke houses, the penny dropped that this wasn't the pinnacle at all. And that led to some soul searching and rethinking about what really is it? What is his purpose and what does he want to be doing with his architectural skills? And like many stories that we do here, serendipity played a role when the firm that he now works for reached out to him and he was able to get there on his own terms or with more of a social orientation. So Shane's passion for his craft really shines through. And I love the story of the staff member going into an assignment, even though it was only a relatively small assignment, it was very complex and it gave that staff member a really new energy from doing that assignment. Now, clarity of purpose in his work really helps Shane and the people in his firm. And we did talk leadership a bit too, but I'll just say the most interesting aspect there, I thought was when he said, if he views leadership as a design challenge, then it becomes far more interesting for him. That type of framing really helps. So there's a link to Shane's firm in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love to get your review and rating so that more people can find the show and hone their purpose edge. Until next time, I'm Phil Preston. Bye for now.